KRCL, 90.9 FM, HD1 in Salt Lake City, Ogden, and Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, on the web at krcl.org. Listener-supported community radio. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for plugging into your community with us tonight. Coming up on the show with the regulated use of psychedelic mushrooms approved by Colorado voters last month, Radioactive is checking in on the Utah movement to legalize it. Christine Stenquist of Truce, a nonprofit focused on safe access to ethically grown and processed cannabis for patients, will join us via Zoom. And Steve Urquhart of the Divine Assembly will be joining us in the studio, a community that believes in the power of responsible religious use of psilocybin to connect people and to cultivate health and healing. Also on the show, we're going to be talking about World AIDS Day with Adam Spivak from the University of Utah. He runs or is part of the clinic up there, the HIV AIDS and PrEP Clinic. We'll find out how that's been since we've checked with them last. But first, some rallies and resources. If you go to krcl.org, click on Community Affairs, you'll find these items. And I do my best to update that regularly. If you've got something you want us to shout out from rallies and resources, be sure to email me, radioactive at krcl.org. Well, coming up this Friday and Saturday, it's the fourth annual Craft Lake City Holiday Market at Ogden's Union Station. They're going to have more than 125 Utah-based artisans, vintage vendors, and foodies all under one roof. You want to shop local, that's a place you can do it. Also on Saturday, it is the Women of the World Celebration of Success at Salt Lake County Government Building, 2 o'clock. You can join them to celebrate and support our new neighbors who are worked hard to achieve their goals, forcibly displaced women who have resettled in Utah. It's open to the public, no ticket necessary, and a great opportunity to meet many successful women and to hear their stories. Saturday, of course, is KRCL's Holiday Soul Party and 43rd birthday party. Tickets still available. VIP starts at 6.30. Regular old party and concert at 8 o'clock. There'll be a photo booth and lots of fun things to participate in. Hope to see you there. It is 21+. Also this weekend, Saturday and Sunday, December 3rd through 4th, American Indian Winter Arts Market up at the University of Utah Union Ballroom. The Utah Division of Indian Affairs happy to announce that they will host the 2022 American Indian Winter Arts Market on Saturday and Sunday. Saturday, it's 10 to 6, a round dance at 6 p.m. Sunday hours are noon to 6 p.m. And then next week, there are three opportunities in Salt Lake City for folks to talk about, learn more, express their feelings on the I-15 expansion, Interstate 15, UDOT. The Utah Department of Transportation has a plan out to expand in as much as seven lanes in each direction from Farmington to Salt Lake City. And on Monday, there is a community event, 5.30 at the Sorensen Unity Center. Tuesday, neighbor works at 5.30 p.m. at the Mestizo Coffee House in Salt Lake on North Temple. And then on Thursday the 8th, a community listening session at 6.30 p.m. at the Zions Building at the Utah Fair Park in Salt Lake City. That one hosted by Senator Luz Escamilla, Representative Angela Romero, and Representative Sandra Hollins. With all of those links on rallies and resources, I've also included the link where you can submit public comment directly to UDOT. 
as we talked about on last night's show, um, community groups have been successful in getting the public comment period extended to January 13th. So do take advantage of that expansion, which is going to affect the Guadalupe neighborhood where KRCL is located, too. Just a, uh, The I-15 uh, is just a block and a half from where the station is located. All of those events and more you can find on our website at krcl.org. And now joining us from the University of Utah, we have Dr. Adam Spivak. Hello, Adam, how are you? Hey, I'm great this evening. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a while since we spoke, but you've been on before talking about the services that you provide. Can you just do a refresher for our listeners about the clinic, where it is, what you offer? You bet. Yeah, we've had an entire uh, other viral pandemic since we were last talking about this. Um, Yeah, so our clinic uh, focuses on preventing the spread of HIV infection. And there is a set of medicines, daily pills, um, that are incredibly effective, 99% effective at preventing the spread of HIV infection. They're safe, they're well tolerated, and we are doing our best to make sure they're accessible for everybody. Wonderful. So explain those those uh, those medications for us and how they work and how folks can get in because it's a free clinic, too. Yeah, absolutely. So um, this actually has been around a while, but it's it's taken us in the, the uh, healthcare industry a little while to, to catch up with it. But um, this medicine, uh, these are meds that treat HIV infection. And it's been over a decade since people came up with the idea that perhaps if people took them as preventives, uh, that they would work. And it turned out they work incredibly well. Um, so the, we have a couple of them that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And again, these are daily pills. It's one pill once a day. Um, they had been unfortunately quite expensive. And again, through some um, uh, means available to us through the drug manufacturer, we're able to get these medicines for free for individuals without health insurance. And so we've partnered with the Utah AIDS Foundation um, and the Department, Utah Department of Health and Human Services, what used to be the Department of Health here in the state, uh, to provide care for free. So we get the meds for free and we provide routine STD, sexually transmitted disease testing, HIV testing, um, and this medicine, which is known as pre-exposure prophylaxis or PrEP. Um, and again, daily pill, well tolerated. Um, and really we're trying to make it accessible for anyone who thinks it would make sense to, to take control of things and prevent uh, any chance of acquiring HIV. What have you noticed over the course of the last couple of years? As you said, last time you're on, uh, since you've been on, we've had uh, another pandemic. And I'm curious what you've seen, or has there been an effect on HIV AIDS as a result, or the folks using PrEP as a result? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, <clears throat> I think one of the the eye-opening things uh, for me as a healthcare provider is that people are very well informed. You know, the, the, the medical jargon we would use would be health literacy. Um, we have lots and lots of folks coming to us well-educated about PrEP, but one of the things that they would say is that because they didn't have insurance or their insurance charged them a lot of money, um, they didn't have access. And, and that's really um, just unconscionable and, and really the reason that our clinic exists is to provide access to everybody. The pandemic did a number of interesting things. It, it forced us to really 
jumpstart plans to do more telehealth and video visits. And these HIV prevention visits really lend themselves to that. It's preventive care. Um, so you're not necessarily needing to see someone in person, which we couldn't do for much of the pandemic. Um, and because we check in with people every three months um, on these meds and follow their lab numbers and whatnot, uh, it's actually more convenient. Most folks prefer to do a quick video visit and get their labs done uh, at their own convenience. So we've actually uh, been able to expand our clinic. We have over 600 patients enrolled, uh, all of whom on PrEP and doing well, uh, and none of whom have had to pay for any of their care. Um, so we, we consider that to be a success. And um, the other thing that's happened in the interim is that PrEP's become more widely available um, for folks who do have health insurance. And so it's it's been found to be so effective that uh, insurance companies cover it uh, and, and should do so. Uh, actually for no charge. Uh, so people who have insurance should have full access as well. So Dr. Spivak, what's going on in the literature and in the research when it comes to HIV AIDS? Are we any closer to perhaps finding a vaccine given uh, the advances of mRNA and the work on the COVID pandemic? Great question. Yeah. So treatment for HIV is fantastic. Uh, we have 13 different regimens that are one pill once a day. And folks on these meds living with HIV are living full healthy lives. These meds also prevent the spread of the disease. So someone who's living with HIV taking these meds and it's suppressing the virus, they cannot and do not pass the virus on to anyone else. So they'll lead a full healthy life uh, and have no risk of transmitting the disease. So we've made great strides in the last four decades plus in terms of treatment. There is no vaccine. Um, you bring up the, the possibility of an mRNA vaccine, and I certainly have heard rumors, and I know Moderna and other companies are certainly giving it a shot, but um, I, there is not much out there in terms of what that looks like and how soon we may see some results. Um, so HIV uh, vet prevention really is back in our court in terms of these daily therapies with PrEP. And we are hopeful that we'll even have some longer acting meds uh, on the market soon. Um, they're just starting to arrive, but not quite uh, in a way that we can use them in the clinic yet in Ta routine fashion. Okay. We're talking with Dr. Adam Spivak from the University of Utah. He is a co-founder and leader of Utah's first and only free HIV prevention clinic. Are you still the only free HIV prevention clinic or since that bio was written has... has yeah, Right. Yeah. A little outdated, I guess. So yes, um, a number of other clinics are working on this. And I would call out a couple of resources for listeners to check out. Um, anyone who's interested in, in getting on PrEP or coming to talk to us about it, um, we have a, a website. If you Google SLC PrEP is free, you'll come up with our website at the University of Utah. The Utah AIDS Foundation has a great uh, web page on, on PrEP and HIV prevention, so I'd encourage listeners to go there. And lastly, the Department of Health and Human Services here in the state, DHHS, has a website called HIVandme.com that has tons of info about the virus, about treatment, about prevention, and, and local clinics as well. And I'll put all those links in tonight's show notes and on the Connect page of krcl.org. Click on Community Affairs. We'll collate them there for you. You're also an investigator in the NIH Recover cohort studying post-acute symptoms of COVID-19 infection. And I thought, I got gotcha. you. I might as well ask because we're hearing more and more about long 
COVID, long haul, long-term COVID. So any uh, update you can give us? Early days on that. Um, yeah, it's it's a fascinating and it seems, unfortunately, fairly widespread uh, phenomenon. And the Recover cohort, as you mentioned, so this big NIH study at University of Utah, we're very lucky to be one of the enrollment sites. Um, and this really got uh, underway, I would say, in the spring. Uh, and we started to enroll a lot of folks uh, who didn't fully recover from COVID. Um, but I, I would say that we don't have all the answers yet. Um, it certainly won't be for a lack of looking. And I think with the number of sites and the number of investigators and, and participants, we're going to get there. Um, but still, unfortunately, uh, with COVID, there's a lot more questions than there are answers. Well, bringing this back to World's Aid, World AIDS Day to wrap up, Dr. Spivak, you teach at the medical school, you mentor postgrad trainees, uh, and all manner of engagement with that next generation of healthcare providers. But it's a generation who doesn't know HIV the way folks from the 80s do. What, what is impressed upon you on this day and the interactions you may have had with students and future doctors about HIV AIDS and, and their role in treating it? Yeah, that's a great a great question. And I certainly can't help but connect uh, my experiences as someone who cares for people living with HIV and focused on HIV prevention, um, you know, a pandemic now that's over 40 years old with um, our current uh, COVID pandemic. Um, you know, and I think, unfortunately, these are not isolated events. And, and as a society, I don't know that as a healthcare system in our country, we didn't necessarily learn all the lessons um, we should have about HIV that would have helped us um, address a new viral pandemic. And unfortunately, um, it's pretty safe to say there will be there will be others. Um, so I think, you know, the 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 I could it's a great question uh, and, and too open ended for um, an academician who can run his mouth. So I'll, <laughs> I'll sum it up and just say um, if there's one thing in all my work as an infectious disease physician that I've learned, um, it's that there there's a tendency in our society, in our politics um, to, to create a narrative about us and them. And it's certainly true, those of us that were alive and, and witnessed uh, what happened throughout the 80s and 90s um, with the HIV AIDS pandemic and the fear and the stigma that still exists to this day around that virus. And it very quickly spread uh, with COVID. You know, it was it was a disease from another country. It was those people. Someone brought it to us. And, and sort of these um, extremely harmful narratives about us and them um, and the message is is very clear to me um, from my work working with patients and and teaching and learning at the bedside, and that's that there really is no them. Uh, there's just us. There's just us. And and the more that we can try to reject that false narrative, um, I think the better off we all are. Dr. Spivak, thank you so much. And what is that search phrase again to find the clinic? Yeah, it's SLC. Prep is free, and I'll, I'll I'll shoot you all those links. Thank you so much, and hopefully next time we talk, there'll be even better news. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. It's Dr. Adam Spivak, and I was looking at the University of Utah Health's Facebook page today where they posted this. The HIV-AIDS pandemic has now been with us for 40 years 
and with devastating effects. For more than 30 million people worldwide have died, nearly 675,000 in the U.S. alone, and more than 1 million Americans are currently living with HIV. Fortunately, dramatic improvements in medical care have converted HIV from a death sentence into a chronic disease across much of the world. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Dr. Spivak and the clinic up at the U, as well as a full timeline of HIV AIDS research and treatment at the University of Utah. Still to come, we're going to be talking about psychedelics in Utah, but right now, from our partners at RIMCOR, Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I've got a great story to share with you. Until recently, Ann Walden's family owned a stretch of land on the Colorado River. Last year, a number of these residents were forced to leave their homes on the banks of the Colorado River after a developer purchased the land, and that included one man living in a cave. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Justin Higginbottom with KZMU visited the spot to learn more about this uniquely Moab former residence just last month. If you drove down Cane Creek Boulevard over the weekend, you might have seen signs for a cave sale. It's what it sounds like, a very Moab take on your weekend yard sale. The caves on the bank of this stretch of the Colorado River have drawn drivers' eyes from the dramatic canyon walls for decades. They're a quirky part of Moab's history, or at least used to be. Anne Walden's family last owned this land. She's guiding a trickle of visitors through the property and retelling some of that history. We had 3,000 chickens in here, and we supplied the town with the eggs. Walden's family sold their farm in Illinois and came to Moab in the early 70s. They bought this stretch of canyon country, which already included the cave complex. My dad and I came out here one winter, and he came down here and he says, this has always been my dream. The previous owner built the caves in the 50s and used them to store chickens. It was cool in the blistering summer and warm in the biting winters. Overhead lights would dim at night so the chickens could rest. Everything was, the temperature was so nice for these chickens. I mean, it was, it was great for them. Walden's family took over the business, providing fresh eggs to grocery stores and restaurants. People would buy the chicken droppings, which seemed to pile up as fast as you could shovel it, for fertilizer. And the kids all had a role in the operation. It was Walden's job to primarily collect the eggs. This here was uh, my washroom here. I had a, a tank here where I... Oh, I had soap I put in, and then I had baskets. I had like a grocery. She's walking me through the cave. Would, uh, After a couple small rooms in the front, it opens up into a space about the size of a basketball court with exposed jagged white rock walls. I'd go through here on these little pads with a grocery cart, and I'd have my baskets. And I'd grab a basket and put it up, and then I'd gently grab the eggs and put them into the basket. And then I get that one full and I put it down and, and as soon as I get enough in, I go into the washroom, wash them and then put them out there for my sisters to do the cantling. My brother and my mother deliver the eggs. It may have been her father's dream, but to Walden, it wasn't the best gig as a teenager. I had a, a raincoat, rubber boots, and a shower cap and a paper mask to wear when I come in. <laughs> It stunk. <laughs> yeah, I always tell people, I says, no wonder I never had no friends in high school. I stunk <laughs> like a chicken, <laughs> you know. Yeah, we had we have our memories with it. We had uh, we only had one chicken that was mean, and she was always at the very end on the other side. And every time we'd come down, 
you know, I get tried to get the eggs, she'd stick her head out and she'd try to peck you, okay? My brother, she pecked him and he took the, the feeding deal and opened the cage and knocked her out. Well, that didn't help matters because she got worse. She, so the next time we go, she got where, you know, it quieted her for about a couple days. After that, she got even worse. And mean so, chicken. yeah, mean chicken. Want to sell that meal bar? Or you keep it at no, I'm, oh, no, I'm selling that. Are you? Yeah, I, I'm selling anything I can say. All right. So if you know anybody wants a meal bar, that's that's that. wood burned in. Is that? Yes, that's pretty cool. And if you look at it, in fact, I'm the artist. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. You see my initials right here? Oh yes. And I did it in 2015, and that's all been wood burned in. Oh, that is cool. It took me a lot of time and work to do that. I bet it did. In the mid-70s, Walden's family quit the chicken business, and the cave became sort of a storage area. There's engine parts, cans of paint, some green office chairs from the 70s. In the back, there's a piano, $50 or your best offer. Everything needs to go. Whatever's left will be tossed out. Walden says she'll be glad to be rid of all the stuff in here but this cave also holds some nostalgia. He was always trying to, my brother Ed was always trying to get out of uh, his job in some way. One, one morning when he was at breakfast and he goes, Mom, he says, Ann's gonna have to do my job. And he goes, I had a horrible dream last night. And we're sitting there going, I says, I'm not doing your job. I got this and this, you know, and, and he goes, but you got to. And I go, well, why? Mom asked him too, you know, and, he goes, well, you know that one mean chicken down on the other end? And we go, well, yeah. He says, she popped her head up over out of the cage. She hollered out to the rest of the girls. And she says, okay, girls, at the count of 10, we open our cages and we get him. And he says, mom, they started counting down. And he says, they opened their cages and they chased me all the way into town. And they got big. They got big. They weren't little chickens anymore. And go, oh no, Ed, you're doing your job. <laughs> Developers recently bought this land. They're building a neighborhood of vacation homes near the property. There was a man renting this cave and living in it for a time. There were others in tracked homes down the road, hugging the canyon's walls. They were all kicked out. It's unclear what will happen to the caves now, but it's unlikely those plans will include chickens. Justin Higginbottom, Rocky Mountain Community Radio. And that story from KZMU shared with us by Rocky Mountain Community Radio, a network of public media stations in Colorado, Wyoming, New Mexico, and Utah, including KRCL. I'll include a link to it so you can check out some photos from Justin's story. When we come back right here on Radioactive, we're going to dive into psychedelics and medical cannabis, get a lay of the land with my guests. So stick around for that to get us from here to there. Get lost in the music. It's Ambar Lucid, KRCL. KRCL's Music Meets Movies takes a turn towards the holidays with a documentary film that dives into the underground world of alternative Christmas music. There is a underground of tape traders and CD traders across the country who do this, try to make cool Christmas discs every year. The worst music in the world is bad Christmas music. I found the typical Christmas music grim. So I thought I'd start making a soundtrack to get myself through the holidays. So talk about what happens in Hollis, Christmas in Hollis. 
I caught Bill back sweating. I just wrote the best rhyme of my life. Christmas, you can love it or hate it, but you can't really ignore it. The music and the memories pierces that pathway. Of course, it's powerful. Join KRCL Thursday, December 8th at Brewies in Salt Lake for a screening of the 2013 documentary Jingle Bell Rocks. Tickets at the door at 6.30, movie at 7.30. Information at krcl.org. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Share the Love event, a partnership with local charities in delivering hope this holiday season. Learn more and info on how to get involved at markmillersubaru.com. You're listening to Radioactive. I'm Laura Jones. And coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now!, followed by Thursday Night Psych Out with DJ Mike at 8. Gianni Walks a Dirty Boulevard at 10.30. Checking in at 1 a.m., I Don't Sound Like Nobody with Rich. Illustrated Blues with Jolene at 3. And John Florence starting off a brand new day at 6 a.m. If you want to catch any of our shows, well, they're on demand every every day. We can keep a backlog of at least two weeks there for you. And also, that's possible because of the generosity of listeners like you who have supported us. So thank you so very much. All right. I don't know if you paid attention to the midterms in other states, but psychedelics were on the ballot. What does that mean for Utah as it's approved in varying ways in Colorado and even more in Oregon? Does that apply pressure to lawmakers here? Will they grant more leniency for medical cannabis, perhaps even full recreational just to stave off psychedelics. Well, that's some of the things I wanted to explore with my guests this hour. In studio, we have Steve Urquhart with us. How are you doing, Steve? I'm doing great. How are you? The Divine Assembly. Yep. Uh, the church you started with psilocybin as the sacrament. And interesting, while we were playing that story about the cave in Moab, you said, hey, we have a cave in Moab that we use every now and then for church. Yeah, we do. We're having some great places uh, where we worship. Um, yeah, in Moab, we have a cave. We have great music, um, great facilitators and guides. We're uh, doing a lot of great things down there. Also wanted to bring in Christine Stenquist from Truce, Together for Responsible Use in Cannabis Education. Hey, Christine, how you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And we got you a little faint. The closer you can get to your microphone, the better. But uh, we wanted to hear a little bit from you because I'm, I'm following you as always and have for years. You've been on and off the show over the years. And you've been posting a lot of, of information about what's going on with medical cannabis. And there is a connection. And I know you're supportive of, of Steve and the work that, that he does. And he was supportive as a lawmaker of the work that you were doing. So, uh, and I do want to make sure folks know about the podcast you do with the Pothead Veteran. <laughs> you were just live at what, 420 earlier today? We did, yep. Um, Truce does a 420 session every Thursday, and we've been doing different topics for patients, um, covering specifically recently for the past couple of months, the synthetic situation that we have going on in the state. So we've been bringing in subject matter experts to educate the patients and just really show them how to be more interactive with their government, attending meetings and being involved. Okay, we're going to get to that. But let's start with Steve yep. and see what we can find about uh, psychedelics on the ballot in surrounding states. So Colorado and Oregon had votes this uh, last November 8th, Steve. Yeah, so Oregon was a couple years ago, and they uh, decriminalized uh, all substances, taking a public health approach instead of a criminal approach. 
uh, like Portugal did with great success, a number of nations are doing. And then they also in Oregon authorized uh, psilocybin mental health therapy. Uh, Colorado, just following what Denver had done a few years before, Colorado voters, they approved, uh, they approved possession, growth, minimal amounts, no sale of psilocybin, and then also some mental health uses of psilocybin. What do you see that, given your experience and expertise in the state house as a senator and a representative, as I recall? Yep. So how do you feel that might play out in terms of pressure here? Because our lawmakers approved a task force to study psilocybin. Yeah, you know, we've had this weird thing the last six years where I think most people would agree our political dialogue has just been horrible. Well, on this one... um, We've had great dialogue at the State House. We have a task force. The task force was staff, staffed by leading professionals and did some cautious, conservative work and recommended that the state should look at using MDMA, uh, also known as Molly, to uh, treat in therapeutic settings. Um, to treat PTSD and then also to use psilocybin to treat depression. And so this is very exciting. I also was reading about Oregon and I guess some of the vote this this fall was about manufacturing and service centers. Some counties said yes, some counties said no. And I'm trying to even imagine that even being on a ballot here in Utah. Yeah, and so that's that's an interesting thing is I do think that our legislature, um, I'm going to say it's likely to pass something. Now, I think really? it probably will pass something saying let's give the agencies time to mm-hmm. put regulations in place. But the legislature is really, really good on mental health issues and a lot of awareness on that. Um, you look at any and all scientific evidence, research evidence that's available, and it suggests that we have some cures for depression, for PTSD. And so I think that they will pass something. Um, It will be an issue then, well, where do they get the material? Yes. And so one thing I would throw out is our church, the Divine Assembly, uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, that's our sacrament, and we do have religious protections, and we have uh, TDA shroomiversity, we call it, and we have well over 100 people in Utah who are growing mushrooms. And part of what we do is we, rather than continue to supply people, we suggest that they teach those people to grow so those numbers will, pardon the pun, mushroom out. <laughs> so yeah. we, we are a ready source yeah. to supply. Well, you said you mentioned research, and you also teach at the University of Utah School of mm-hmm. Medicine, and Dr. Mm-hmm. Spivak was on just recently. It's a, a, a research class A number one facility. Mm-hmm. There is opportunity here in terms of research and innovation for healing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Christine will remember uh, years ago, we tried to get the University of Utah to look at cannabis, researching that, and oh my gosh, we we were thrown out of the office. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of money in researching psilocybin because it's the first time in human history we really can talk about curing depression. And, uh, you know, let me put a plug in for, we have a Zoom coming up with Roland Griffiths from uh, Johns Hopkins University the leading researcher in the world on psilocybin. Uh, He's going to talk to Divine Assembly um, December 6, 6 p.m. You can get information from that on our website, thedivineassembly.org. We'll put it in the show notes. The first research scientist of the psychedelic renaissance. 
And uh, that will indeed be an interesting conversation. I might even ask if I can record it so we could share some of that information. Absolutely. That'd be great. So, Christine, you were laughed out of the University of Utah when you talked to them about growing uh, just cannabis. About, yeah, about doing research on cannabis. And I was going to interject and just pull this together because Steve and I have a friend that we met through all that experience, Dr. Sue Sisley, who is in Arizona. And I spoke to just like a month and a half ago about her psilocybin research that she's conducting right now. So it's it's just interesting to see the dynamics that has happened in, sh- in such a short time. It's, it's kind of amazing. Um, yeah, I remember when you first started coming on the show, the fear that you encountered among lawmakers, policymakers, uh, you know, folks at, at universities. What do you think is, has changed? Is it that they're finally seeing the medicine and saying, yes, that's real? Yes. And ironically, it's, it's fun to sit with Steve because he was the one that passed the CBD bill here in Utah that really started the conversation about plant medicine, him and Gage Brower. So you've got to tip your hat to these gentlemen who really started something. A, a real dialogue is now starting to happen about plant medicine and mental health in a profound way. We have struggled as a country for years with mental mental health, and this might be the groundbreaking thing for us. And as as you know, I deal with patients and we're dealing with cannabis with chronic pain and chronic um, illness. And as people start to get those symptoms alleviated, cannabis is a psychedelic. It does start to open up the patient a little more and wanting to dive into those mental health um, issues that they haven't quite addressed. And psilocybin is a safe medicine for them to, to branch out to. Steve, talk about that a bit and uh, in, in forming the Divine Assembly and making this leap from um, former Southern Utah conservative practicing member of the LDS church and to where you are now. You saw something happen. Yeah. Um, you can bear witness, testimony if you will, <laughs> about what, is, what she's talking about, that yeah. there's not only this... Um, Thing that happens in your brain but maybe in in your heart yeah absolutely um that's the reason that that i'm such an advocate that's the reason that uh sarah and i started the divine assemblies we saw it in our lives i mean i was toward the end of my 16-year legislative career i was non-functional um attempted suicide uh you know i, I was drunk and or stoned every single day at the capitol my last three years I, I was falling apart in, in every way possible. So crawled out of there, and uh, my wife and I, we found psychedelics, and it opened us up, and it completely changed us, which is what all the scientific evidence is saying can happen if you do it in the right setting. Um, and it, it we see this every week at the Divine Assembly with people that they just, all of a sudden, the filters fall away because we have this beautiful default mode network in our mind that it makes snap judgments. Well, a lot of those filters, they're just wrong. Mm. So reality as we see it isn't real. And so despite, you know, all of the pink elephants and the beautiful shapes, all the fun, wonderful things of psychedelia, in a lot of ways, it gives us a picture that is more real than reality, where we see ourselves differently. And a lot of the stories we've been told, we reject those. And all of a sudden, we find value in ourselves, and we learn to love ourselves. Then we love others. Everything changes. And I know I've said this to you on the show many times before, the way you talk to uh, 
about this now versus your career in the legislature. It's this 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 leap, and I don't want to say it's all because of psilocybin. It's been a, a, a more complex journey than that, but it feels like we what you're saying is we get locked into. The stories that we tell ourselves that others have told us about how we're supposed to be, mm-hmm. who we're supposed to be, what success looks like, what being a contributing member of society looks like. And when we fail that bar, um, we kind of vote ourselves off the island as opposed yeah. to looking at other options. Absolutely. We sabotage ourselves with these stories, these pictures of ourselves and situations that just aren't true. And this is this is what talk therapy, this is what yoga, this is what meditation, there are many ways to accomplish this, but often psychedelics can just be such a shortcut where these stories, they just fall away. And we see things with fresh eyes as they really are, and then we can deal with the situation. Christine, I wanted to bring you in because these are the conversations I had with you in the early days of truce as well, before Steve was on this with us as well. Mm -hmm. It it is, and you know, truce is, you know, we're a plant medicine group together for responsible use and cannabis education. We were always supportive of psilocybin as a therapy and not just plant medicine. I'm, um, I've seen in my own life profound change with um, ketamine. Uh, right now, that's a legal form and access that patients can get aid until we get to a point where we can access psilocybin. I know this task force is setting recommendations. They want testing to be done. And just like with cannabis, the safety index on these psychedelics is profound, right, Steve? I mean, we we Uh have really great safety index with psilocybin. So what I don't want to see as we struggle in this state with suicide and with um, lack of harm reduction component really truly in place, I don't want us to wait forever for us to have access to psilocybin. I would like us to really push that ball a little forward you know so this is funny christine and i we first met when i was running the cbd bill and uh mm-hmm. and and i want to clarify something all i did was carry christine's purse when it came over <laughs> to the senate and i'm sure sure representative frower would say he did the same thing in the house she's the one who got this done um but so it you know learning in those early stages uh you know it's it's been quite a progression and so because of the groundwork that we have, have paved in there, we're moving rapidly. So this is the question. Christine and I were, were arguing at that point. I mean, you know, we've, we've always enjoyed each other, but she wanted yeah. us to go further, saying CBD really doesn't do much of anything that matters. And I was saying, look, it's a start. You Just have start to somewhere. start somewhere. And that's the argument we're going to face again this year, I guarantee yeah. you. is. Mm-hmm. And I still am an incrementalist on this. I think that a yeah. positive step in Utah on psilocybin matters. I think that when we medicalize it, that's just going to mean that a small affluent part of the population gets access. Mm-hmm. But still, to me, it destigmatizes and takes right. a step. I'm interested to know, Christine. Do we do we still have the same argument? Are you uh, are you wanting to to, to go uh, further faster? I well, I'm a little concerned about how slow they want to go, and the reason being is that what I was getting at is Sue says we're a ways from being able to dose this psilocybin in a manner that we know is good for a patient. You can't even get the right dosing from one fruit to another, one mushroom to another, because it varies so much. So I'm worried about the 
the length of time it's going to take for access to truly happen. So probably a little bit. I, I want access to, ha I want decriminalization to happen so that we can move towards something a little more substantive for patients. I, I understand the, the effort to go slow, but I, I worry when we go slow, you're gonna see what happened to cannabis and we're in a world of mess folks. And, and it's frustrating to watch. Yes, we have dispensaries in our state, but the quality of, of medication is not there. The, the hopes and the dreams of creating a medical program, it's, it's about as real as Main Street Disney is right now. It, it's, it's, just, it's just plywood and paint in the guise of being a medical program. And I'm worried when they set all these lofty ideals of wanting to create a medical approach and going very slow and bringing all these top individuals into our state, they're actually creating some barriers. And, and so I'd like the balance to continue as a conversation. I don't want us to shut the door and say, we just got to set up research studies and that slow pace before patients can actually have access. We're getting a psychedelics update here in the land of Zion with our guest this evening, Christine Stenquist from Truce, Together for Responsible Use in Cannabis Education, and Steve Urquhart from the Divine Assembly, which has psilocybin as its sacrament. So let's get into this medical cannabis situation that you were alerting me to before the show. And I see on your Facebook page, which is Truce Utah, folks, if you want to follow along, You've posted something that Utah regulators say they're pushing for new rules governing the presence of Delta H, THC, and other synthetic cannabinoids allowed in the state's medical marijuana supply. So what's going on? Is this part of this conversation that you're saying is complicating things? It is. It is. Um, we have had, I have to preface this because um, there's a lot of good people who are trying to do good. Senator, Former Senator Urquhart is one of those people who, try to take a situation, an issue he didn't know a whole lot about and do the best he could for the people of Utah. And I think there are legislators who are trying to do the same. Um, there's always lobbyists, there's always industry that are trying to get their needs met. So I don't know if this is a blame game and I don't want it to sound like that. Um, in ignorance, there have been allowed certain policies to happen that have allowed synthetics and hot hemp. Hot hemp it, by definition is anything that's over 0.3% THC into our program. We're the only state that has allowed that to happen. And from that, we have now had some uh, not such clean processes going on in our state. It has left some um, byproducts uh, at the end results of some of our medication. These are now showing up in higher levels than our state allowed at one point in time. There have been lobbyists for certain companies that have come out and pushed those limits. And the only thing patients could do was demand labeling. And, and once it hit a certain point, and that's what happened here in September, I've got a phone call from the ag department indicating we need to uh, let patients know that there's gonna be new cannabinoids in our products. In my research and talking with scientists, these are not new cannabinoids, they're byproducts, they're degradants. And so I'm concerned that these products are now out in the space and patients have been consuming them. We have had complaints for a couple of years now since the program's been up online about the quality of product. And we've come to find out that this has been in our products the entire time. It's only now being labeled 
because we insisted on that kill switch earlier this session when they decided to put synthetics in. I'm very upset about it because I keep getting messages now from patients who are seeing these articles and hearing me talk about this story who have been sick for a long time. And so there's true harm that has happened in our state. And I don't think that that was the intent when we created a medical cannabis program. And so um, I hope that the legislators do something this session to clean this mess up because this should not have ever been allowed. And they had been warned and they had been cautioned, not just by me, but third party regulators outside of our state. Wow. So, so is this a is this a case of not having enough expertise in the state of Utah and the bureaucracy or yes. lawmakers who um, maybe aren't taking this <laughs> as rigorously, not seriously, but as rigorously as they do control of alcoholic beverages? It, it's so hard. You know, when I started reading through rules and reading through the law, um, by the way, I feel like I need a degree at this point reading right. cannabis legislation in this state. <laughs> I I could not distinguish if this was with malice or ignorance. And at this point, I don't care. I don't want to pass blame. I just want to protect patients. And when you go to the state agencies and you bring subject matter experts and you bring studies and you try to articulate your point and it just falls on deaf ears, the only thing you're left to do is go to the press. And that's unfortunately where we are again. Well, thanks for going to the press. Thanks for sharing that. Steve, given your background, your experience, what do you think? It's a case of, or have any insight? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, this is something that I wish more of our legislators did drugs because they would understand what they're regulating. I mean, so here you take the cannabis situation, Delta nine, the natural cannabinoid, because that is what, they're going after weed, right? And so they're going mm -hmm. after the natural product. Well, we're in a day and age where people, they're gonna get relief. So you have this Franken cannabinoid, Delta-8, that all of a sudden, arguably, that that poses some dangers by the way mm -hmm. that it's created. Delta-9, what Christine was talking about earlier, patients can, they can self-titrate, right? If you get too stoned, then smoke less next time, you know, use less. And so that's what I wish they understood with psilocybin also is that this is something people really can self-titrate. And so right. if they... And titrate meaning dosage and how yeah, much you Yeah, take. dosage. And mm -hmm. so make sure you're in a safe, secure place and, you know, yeah. go easy. Start, start in little amounts. And, you know, if you do too much, then wait it out, do less next time. And also, you know, I wish they understood the amount of product that is out there. I mean, again, they're going after right. Delta 9. Well, you go to, to Deep Roots in Wendover, that parking lot is full of Utah plates. And saying no matter what they think they're doing with psilocybin, if they're going to restrict it and only allow it in these situations, remember, you know, Divine Assembly alone, we have over 100 people growing who they're giving it away for free. That's one of our requirements. And mm -hmm. they're teaching other people to grow. So by the time we meet in the session, you know, alone, we'll probably have, you know, 300 growers. And by next year, we'll have a thousand growers. So, Well, how safe do you feel? Because I know you say that. I know you know how the system works, how the sausage is made, if you will. But I'm worried about folks growing it, making it on their own, giving it away, uh, even though you are quite clear in your mind this is a constitutional religious freedom issue. I'm just waiting for those cases to come. Well, they're here. I mean, the, the Supreme Court unanimously uh, decades ago decided that 
uh, ayahuasca that it is a sacrament for the UDV church. It's a, the, a federal district court in Oregon said that ayahuasca is a sacrament for Santo Daime. The same exact logic applies. Religious mm-hmm. protection, it is robust in the United States. And so. But I've seen that applied culturally, <clears throat> like peyote with Native Americans. Mm-hmm. I've yet to see it tested with, you know, forgive the phrase, average white guy Steve Urquhart growing <laughs> and, and using his own. I'm waiting for that case to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I hope I don't see that case in particular. <laughs> um, but that Sorry. is the way it works. When yeah. when you say we are religion, we are using an entheogenic sacrament, you know, a natural plant sacrament. Um, the DEA, no one says, okay, we bless you. This is great. Mm-hmm. Go for it. Um, you do it. And what we're doing is we're being as responsibly as responsible as we can be, as sincerely as we as sincere as we can be. We have a lot of lawyers looking at this. We have each of our members. We suggest that they do a personal creed that this is their this is their sacrament. This is their beliefs. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think it does say something that we are really out in the open and we haven't been prosecuted. I mean, I talk with chiefs of police, prosecutors all the time. I say, this is what we're doing, and I want you to know we're doing it safely, so you shouldn't be worried about us. Legally, you can't be worried about us. If you are worried about us, don't you dare come and interrupt one of our ceremonies because you'd be causing harm. If you really need a trophy bust, here's my address, here's my phone number, come get me, and let's let's talk with the judge. So earlier this year, as the Trib reported in mid-November, the legislature created the Utah Mental Illness and Psychotherapy Task Force earlier this year. What are you all hearing about how that's functioning? What do you hope happens in this next legislative session? Steve, we'll start with you. Um, I think they're going to pass something, probably with a delayed uh, implementation date, giving the agencies <clears throat> time to figure something, figure out how exactly they want to do this. I think this is a responsible step. And they also, as according to the Tribune, concluded recently that after months of study, as you said earlier in our conversation, MDMA and psilocybin can offer significant benefits to those with mental illness. So, Christine, what are you hoping or expecting to happen this legislative session with the task force? Oh, the same. I I think Steve's nailed that. I think that they will pass something. It will be conservative and you know, I'll champion it. I'll, I'll say it's a great first step. Um, I'll always be wishing in the back of my heart that it's a little bit more. But I think that's just, you know, me. Yeah. Well, we have just a few minutes left, so I wanted to give each of you the opportunity to, you know, make any sort of final statement for our listeners who may be listening going, I I've, I, really want to get involved in this issue, Christine. And you have Truce, and that's a great organization. You have someone on your board who is following psilocybin issues, too. Right, Christine? She is. Valerie is my vice chair in Anahnahu Plots, and she is amazing. And we'd love to come back and talk a little more about this this issue and and the concern she is and does have a background with maps and so she does have that psychedelic experience and that understanding and it's just i think it is a conversation that if we are going to be looking at this task force passing something this this january this um this session we got to start talking about it as a community what does responsible use look like in this context and for me that means making sure that we have mental health professionals that are helping patients through integration, because that's a really help, um, important part in this. And you mentioned MAPS, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, correct? 
That's correct. I'll put yes. a link in the show notes for folks to check it out. Steve, final <laughs> thoughts and a reminder about your online webinar with Professor Roland Griffiths next week. Yes, I'll start with that one. So uh, Roland Griffiths, uh, Johns Hopkins University, um, he's, he's the researcher who really got it going in the Renaissance. Um, he has stage four cancer. And uh, he wants to come talk with Divine Assembly and Utahns about uh, psychedelics and spirituality. He's, he's taking off the cloak of the scientist a bit, which he never has, to talk about uh, spirituality. And uh, we're very excited about that. So again, that's Zoom. Go to thedivineassembly.org to get info. And then I would say psychedelic, it can be life-changing for the better. Um, it really can help with mental health issues, addiction, all sorts of issues. But I'm going to end on a conservative note and say these things are powerful. And because they're powerful, be careful what you're doing. You know, while I'm an advocate, I want people to be safe. And what that means is be in when you use these things, especially if you haven't used them much, be in a secure setting with people you 100% trust who know what they're doing because it can get dangerous. It can get very scary if you're not being held properly. And uh, I didn't leave you much time to talk about this, but on Giving Tuesday, you were raising funds for the Dell, the property where you have the summer solstice, and you've got a bit of a tiff with GoFundMe. Yeah, well, no, I, I get what they're doing. So we're raising money for a property 50 miles west of Salt Lake. Um, it's, it's just going to be so fabulous what we do out there with our ceremonies. Um, everyone's going to be invited out to do it. And so we were just chugging along and we raised $19,000 and I'm like, we're going to nail our $25,000 goal. And then all of a sudden, boop, 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 all these emails, they sent it back to the donors and they said, you violate our terms of service. Well, I knew exactly why they'd done this with our festival too, a different one. Um, so I said, why, what? And they said, well, because drugs, well, okay, land can't use drugs, but I, but I get why they did. Yeah. This mm -hmm. is religious discrimination, but it's not being done in this case by an individual, by a company. This is systemic, right? Mm -hmm. The system is set up against entheogenic worship, worshiping with these power plants. So nothing against GoFundMe, nothing against anyone. Uh, we're going to raise the money in different ways, but it, this is why we have the Divine Assembly. This is why we need the Dell. We need a place to worship safely. What's the website or socials where folks can catch up with you? So the Divine Assembly, put the, the in the divineassembly.org and then our socials uh, at Mushroom Sacrament on Instagram. And Truce, Christine, what's your website yeah. and socials? It's truceutah.org is our website. And then you can find us on Facebook at truceutah.org or we'll put Truce Utah on Facebook. Yeah. We'll put all of it in tonight's show notes. Christine Stenquist and Steve Urquhart, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. And thank I just you. want to end by saying Christine's my hero. <laughs> oh, you're mine too. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you, Laura. I really appreciate you having us on. You're welcome. And we're going to go out with a bit of the Beatles. Tomorrow Never Knows on okay. KRCL. We'll see you tomorrow for Punk Rock Farmer Friday at 6. KRCL, Salt Lake City. Looking to upgrade your vehicle soon? Consider donating your car to KRCL. Our vehicle donation partner will give you a tow and a tax receipt and cut KRCL a check. Find details about donating your car to KRCL at the support tab at krcl.org. No.